So this is our third week in this uh, series that we're calling Who is Jesus? This series um, where we're back in our exploration of uh, the biography of Jesus written in the Bible by uh, one of his friends, a guy named a guy named Matthew. We've been studying this book for three years, and, and it's in this series really that we reach the climax and the, the major turning point in the first part of this book because everything up until this point in, the, in Matthew's story about who Jesus is has been building to this moment, to this stretch of stories where Matthew ultimately in a sense, unveils his fullest version, his fullest description of who Jesus is, of who Matthew understands Jesus to be. And so that's what we started looking at um, two weeks ago, but in particular focus last Sunday, where we, where we heard this story where Matthew communicated that in, that in his opinion to his um, readers who would have been predominantly Jewish Christians, that Jesus is, in Matthew's opinion, the most significant spiritual figure that had ever lived in their religious tradition. I think um, because that was his audience, that's how Matthew would have said it. I think to us, Matthew would want us to say that Jesus is the most significant spiritual figure that has ever lived in human history, just unrivaled and unparalleled and incomparable among the spiritual leaders in human history. And the reason Matthew says that is because Jesus is the one who has come to set people free. Set people free from the the power of sin and evil that sometimes rules within us. The, the, The power of sin and evil that sometimes swirls around us to, to set people free from the ugly choices that we sometimes, you know, that we don't want to make but sometimes still do or, or from being the ugly people that we don't want to be but sometimes we still are to, to set us free from the pain and the brokenness that often is the result in our lives from other people's ugly choices. The pain, the sadness, the fear, the shame that rules and ruins our lives. In a sense, Jesus is the one who came to make us whole and to make us holy, kind of exclusively devoted to walking in the way of Jesus, people who love God and who love ourselves and who love each other and who love our life and who love the world. Jesus came to gather people who were far from God and far from each other and to to draw them together into spiritual community, open, vulnerable relationship with God and with each other as we live as a community in the in the presence of God, celebrating and feasting. We talk about how you know joy and gladness would overwhelm sorrow and sighing both in this life and for all of eternity. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus came. And Matthew, in the text we're going to look at this morning, starts at this understanding of who Jesus is, and then he presses it even further. We're starting in in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 22. It says this, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Jesus has just finished feeding 15 or 20,000 starving people. 
with a picnic lunch that was put together for a small family of four or five. And Jesus took the food and he miraculously multiplied it and multiplied it until it had fed um, to the full all 15 or 20,000 people that had gathered there and not only just fed them until they were content, but the abundance was so amazing that there were baskets and baskets and baskets of, of leftovers. Well, Jesus, this is where the story picks up, Jesus is just dispersing the crowd, trying to you know, send them home so he could have some alone time, some time for him to just be alone with his heavenly father in prayer. That's why Jesus came out into this remote area in the first place. And so he was trying to get rid of the crowd. And as a part of that, he gets rid of his disciples. It says he, he made them get into the boat and go on to the other side of the lake, on the side that was closer to home. I didn't, I think, want to leave him there, but he was insistent, I need some time by myself, and he goes up after everybody's gone. He goes up onto this mountain to pray, to be with God. And has happened to me so many times when I pray, you just lose track of time. It says, you know, that after he, oh, sorry, that uh, later that night it says he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Jesus prays kind of deep, deep, deep into the night, you know, like I uh, very often do. And uh, in the next verse, it'll say, shortly before dawn, in the fourth watch of the night, which in Roman uh, timekeeping was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning and probably closer to the 6 a.m. side, Jesus had literally spent all night with God in prayer, which meant that his disciples had an enormous head start in getting back home. They had gone down to the shore, they had gotten into their little boat, and they had set out, and it says that they were a considerable distance. The Greek says many stadia. A, a stadion was about 600 feet, about 200 meters. They were, so multiply that by many, they're what, three or four kilometers into the lake. But they're not having an easy go of it. They've been working all night and have only gotten three or four kilometers into the wake. And it says their boat was being battered by this incredible headwind. A strong headwind. That they, it says that the, the wind was against the boat. Now you can read that meteorologically. The wind was coming from the direction that they were trying to go, making it hard for them to proceed, which I'm sure was true. But you can read that narratively too. The wind was fighting them at every turn. The wind was constantly opposed to whatever it was that they were trying to do. And this boat was stuck out in the middle of the lake, being battered by the waves in the midst of this storm. In fact, the word Buffeted, the word actually means to be tortured. The boat was being tortured by the lake. It was creaking and groaning and pulling. The whole thing was threatening to come apart. And the disciples in the boat had been fighting against these circumstances all night long. Sailing into the wind. They were, they were tired and cold and frustrated and exhausted and wet and aggravated and frankly terrified for their lives 
Storms on the Sea of Galilee can become incredibly fierce. But at a much deeper level than that, the sea itself in Jewish religion was thought to be the the place where evil dwells. Uh, Ancient Jews weren't uh, sea-faring people. They were landlubbers. To them, uh, the sea was a place of darkness and chaos and turmoil and destruction and death. It was a place where evil resides. It was a place that was animated by anti-God forces. And so here they were fighting all night, struggling against the headwind, unable to get anywhere. Their boat being battered and tortured. Their boat nearly you know, coming apart at the scenes as these evil circumstances swirled in darkness all around them and out of their control. And they had no idea what they were able to do. I wonder... I wonder whether anyone else has ever felt that. Today is actually my 13th wedding anniversary. And uh, it's actually my 12th wedding anniversary. (laughs) But this, not like this is being recorded or anything. Um, (laughs) Today's my 12th wedding anniversary. And I won't, I won't bore you with the details of all the places you know, it, that our life circumstances have taken us except to say that Krista and I are not strangers uh, to fertility testing. Krista and I are not strangers to specialist appointments and hospital visits. Krista and I are not strangers to the counselor's office, to, to group therapy. Krista and I are not strangers to the funeral home and the graveside. We have lived through our fair share of storms where things felt like they were swirling out of control around us, where everything was black and chaotic and felt evil and where we felt like we weren't even sure we were gonna be able to hold it together. And the worst part for the disciples, the worst part of all of it was that Jesus was nowhere to be found. The disciples had been in storms before with Jesus. We read about them in Matthew chapter 8. They had, they had been in storms with Jesus and they had seen Jesus' ability to calm the storm. They had seen Jesus' ability to make the circumstances right again. But in this, this time, Jesus was nowhere to be found. In fact, they were quite a considerable distance away from the place that they had left Jesus. And it had been quite a number of hours since they had sensed the presence of Jesus among us. Not only was there the, the circumstances swirling out of control and the poor little battered boat being threatened to pull apart. Not only were they afraid for their lives, they had no sense that, that Jesus knew anything about the struggle that they were in. Which wasn't true despite the fact that they felt it. In verse 25 it says, Shortly before dawn Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Um, they, they were pulling all night against the oars into the wind, the chaos of the storm. They're afraid for their lives. And then suddenly, in the gloom of dusk, through the spray of the waves and the storm and the rain and whatever, they see this figure gliding towards them above the waves. And they absolutely, I mean, they don't recognize Jesus for a second. They absolutely panic. They're shrieking in fear. They're terrified that this is a ghost. Now, considering 
that ancient Jews believed that the sea is the abode, the, the, uh, the place where evil dwells, the access point between the upper world and the nether world where evil resides. I would think a ghost is a fairly optimistic option, right? This could have been a demon. This could have been death coming to claim them. They're absolutely going bananas in panic because they don't, in the midst of their circumstance, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the fear, they don't recognize the presence of Jesus with them in the middle of whatever it is that they're going through. I wonder whether anyone here has ever been in a situation where you, you didn't even realize that the very thing that you were most afraid of was actually the thing that God was sending to you to be your redemption. Because sometimes in the chaos and the fear, we miss it. We don't see the presence of Jesus among us for who he is. Verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. This verse is actually the dead center of the story that Matthew is telling. And, and in this verse, Jesus answers the disciples with three sentences. And the sentence that says, it is I, is in the dead center of Jesus' response to the disciples, which is in the verse that is in the dead center of the story that Matthew is trying to tell. It, it might cause some perceptive people to think that Matthew may just be drawing our attention to this sentence at the dead center of the dead center of the story that Matthew's trying to tell, the red circle bullseye of what it is that Matthew's trying to say is this tiny little sentence where Jesus yells to his disciples and says, it is I. When in fact, when you read in the Greek, that's not exactly what Jesus says. In the Greek language, what it says, it, Jesus calls to his disciples and says, take courage, I am. I am. Matthew's readers were primarily Jewish Christians who would have been very familiar uh, with the Jewish scriptures. And to them, that phrase, I am, was a phrase that was pregnant with an incredible amount of significance because throughout the Jewish scriptures, I am is the only name that God, the God of the Jews, ever calls himself. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. The fuller version is I am who I am. And God, his name means I am. It's a, it's a mysterious name with a, a mysterious meaning. Um, some scholars think it means, you know, who I am is too mysterious for me to explain to you. I just am. Or maybe it means, you know, you are going to see who I am by the way that I participate in your life. Or maybe it means I am in the sense that I'm the, the living God who exists as opposed to all the other gods who don't really exist. Maybe it means I am 
Um, in terms of God's faithfulness, I will continue to be for you the, the God that I have always been. But in the, at the end of the day, what Jesus is declaring to the disciples in the boat is that he is the presence of God to them in the midst of the chaotic, evil, dark, destructive circumstances that they found themselves in that were filling their lives with fear. That Jesus is the presence of God with them in the midst of whatever it was that they were going through. In fact, in the first chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew says that Jesus is the one who will be called Emmanuel, which means God himself is with us. God himself is among us. And in response to the storm through which the disciples were living, this is Jesus' declaration about who he is in the dead center of the dead center of the story. I am God with you in the middle of what you're going through right now. In fact, it's not even just um, this phrase, I am. It's actually not just what Jesus says, it's what Jesus does that Matthew is intending that would communicate to us that he is God with them in the midst of our, their circumstances and God with us in the midst of our circumstances. He would think that his readers would think about a verse like Job chapter 9 verse 8. That says of God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. In fact, in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it says that he is the one who walks on the waves as though on firm ground. Matthew would think that his readers would would think back to verses like Psalm chapter 77. I'll read the beginning and the end. The beginning says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. I would not be comforted. Then down to verse 16. It says, the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. Verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen, all the way through the Jewish scriptures. One of the ways in which the the Jewish writers demonstrate the sovereignty, the majesty, the power of God over everything that happens in the world, the power of God over evil and chaos and darkness and destruction and death is to say that God is the one who walks on the water. God is the one who treads evil beneath his feet. God is the one who has the power to walk all over the evil that is inflicting your life. So I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what's battering your boat right now. I don't know what's knocking you around right now. now. I don't know what headwind you're trying to sail into and it's making it feel like progress in life is absolutely impossible. You're feeling stuck. I don't know what's making you afraid right now. I don't know what's creating chaos and turmoil inside of you so that you're, you're crying out in fear. But what I do know is that the Jesus that Matthew describes is a God who is with you in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through right now. A God who has the power and authority to walk all over the circumstances that you're living through right now. A God who is not defeated by your circumstances, but who has the power to walk all over them. And God is inviting you 
to see Jesus as the presence of God right in the midst of what it is that you're going through right now. And more. And more. In verse 28, Jesus just said, you know, take courage, I am. Verse 28, it says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. (laughs) Peter calls out to Jesus. He says, "If if it's you, if it's really you, and tell me to come. Tell me to walk on the water. Um, it, some scholars think that Jesus is asked, or that Peter's asking Jesus to verify his identity. It's sort of like a security check, right? Like if it's really you, uh, you will know uh, the answer. What's your mother's maiden name, right? Like this, Peter's kind of doing this, but it's sort of a funny test if you ask me, right? If it's really you, tell me to walk on the water. Now suppose for a second it was a ghost, Right? What's, what's Peter expecting? The ghost is going to say, okay, well, you got me. I'm not really Jesus. Uh, stay in the boat. It's safer out there. Uh, right? or, or, or if it's a ghost, he says, no, come, walk on the water. And Peter gets out of the boat and goes, bloop. Well, he's, he's proven it's not Jesus, but I'm not quite sure at the cost that he can live with. Um, literally. Uh, so he, I don't think he's asking Jesus to verify his identity. Uh, this word in Greek can also be translated since. He's saying to Jesus, since it's you, tell me to come to you. It's an interesting request because that's not what I would have asked for from Jesus in that moment. I would say, oh good, it's you. How about you you deal with all of this stuff right here? Wrap it up, Jesus. I've seen you do this before. Just put a lid on all of this. Get into the boat and we'll sail on over to the other side and everything's going to be hunky-dory, right? That's what I would have asked because what I want from Jesus when I'm living through those seasons where everything is dark and evil and chaotic and circumstances are swirling out of control and I'm terrified and I'm afraid and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure we're going to make it. What I want from Jesus in that moment is I want Jesus to calm the storm and make the circumstances go away. But that's not what Peter asked for because because Peter remembers something about being a disciple of Jesus that I forget too often. We've talked about this in prior series, that followers of Jesus do what? They follow Jesus. What Peter knows in that moment is that this is Jesus walking on the water. Jesus is the master. Peter is the apprentice. And the one thing the apprentice knows about following the master is that I'm supposed to be doing whatever it is the master is doing. That if, if Jesus responds to the storm, <coughs> excuse me, if Jesus responds to the storm is to not calm it but to walk on the water through it, then that must be what Jesus wants me to do. And he calls out, To Jesus and says, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter climbs out over the boat and starts walking on the water. And honestly, friends, I think that's what Jesus wants from us. When we're living through our own storms, when we're living through our own seasons of darkness and chaos and evil and turmoil and whatever, when circumstances are swirling out of control and we're afraid and we don't know whether we're going to hold it together, what, what God wants from us is not the kind of faith that asks him to deal with the storm and clear the circumstance. I don't think that's what Jesus always wants anyway. I think sometimes and maybe most of the time what Jesus wants from us is to be the kind of people who walk strongly 
and confidently in faith on top of our circumstances just the way that Jesus does. When he says in an earlier verse, we won't put it up, but he says, take courage. What he means is be firm, be resolute, be strong and confident because it's me. You have nothing to worry about. It's me. And Peter says, well, if it's you and I'm supposed to be strong and confident, have nothing to worry about, then tell me to walk. And I will walk in faith with strength and confidence on top of the water just like you did. That's what Jesus wants. What Jesus wants is most of the time, I think, is not to calm the storm. It's he wants us to take a stroll through the storm. He wants us to walk with confidence and strength in faith through and on top of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. The storm didn't go away. Peter just took a stroll through the storm. And this, by the way, and I need to say this out loud because this is our culture. This is is not the power of positive thinking. Jesus is not saying to Peter, you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it. That's one of the most destructive and dangerous myths in our entire culture. I'm convinced of it. I remember years ago being at Disney with my little girls, and we were watching one of the parades, you know, the 3 o'clock parade in the afternoon, and the song that was blaring all around was a song called Celebrate a Dream Come True. And one of the lines in the song was, if you close your eyes, you will realize that anything is possible. I remember as soon as the parade was done, I got down on my knees with a couple of my girls. They were like five and six and seven, somewhere in there. And I said to the girls, do you realize, girls, that that's not true? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, "Uh, it is not true that anything you dream is possible. That's just not true about life. I felt kind of bad deconstructing Disney for my girls, but, I, but we've been fighting against this message in our family. One of our girls came home the other day and said, you know, uh, Dad, our teachers tell us that if we believe that we can do it, we can. And you know what, Dad? Everything that I believe that I've been able to do, I've been able to do, so I believe them. And I'm all for people thinking positively and confidently and so on. I'm all for having self-esteem and all of that. And this is a girl who can do it, right? When she was five years old, we were having dinner together. She was five years old and she said, you know what, Dad, I know how to ride a bicycle. And I said, I know, honey, I've seen you many times on the driveway. And she said, no, no, no. I mean, I know how to ride a bicycle with two wheels. And I said, I know, you're not on the tricycle anymore. You're on the bicycle and I think it's wonderful. And she said, no, 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 with only two wheels. And I said, yes, the two big ones and then there's the two little ones that keep you from falling over. And she said, no, there's only two wheels. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I know how to ride a bike that only has two wheels. You'd think at this point I'd start to catch on. I said, I need you to show me what you're talking about. So we left the dinner table, we went out to the garage and she put on her helmet and jumped on her bike and started riding in circles around the garage. This girl had literally taught herself how to ride a bicycle because she thought one afternoon, I think that's something fun and I'd like to know how to do it. And so she went and taught herself how to do it. This is a girl who has an extraordinary ability to accomplish things, very determined. And, um, and so she comes home and she says, everything I've been able to, everything I believe I can do, I'm able to do. And that's a true statement. But Krista had to pull her aside and say, but that's not always going to be true. We live with this dream in our culture that the power of positive thinking, that if you visualize it, it'll happen or whatever, and it's garbage. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about positive thinking. He's talking about faith. He's talking about putting your faith 
in Jesus. Jesus is God in our midst, in the midst of the storm, who has the power and ability and authority to walk all over the evil circumstances that we find ourselves living to, living through. And when we, when we, um, when we get out of the boat, I mean, Jesus is the one who green lights the whole getting out of the boat thing. When we get out of the boat and walk through the storm, it's a walk of faith where we keep our eyes on him and we trust him to fill us with the power and authority and the strength and the confidence to keep walking on top of the water through our circumstances. But we walk because of him, not because of us. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. But that's the invitation of Jesus. Get out of the boat and start walking on the water through the circumstances of your life. Live with the strength and confidence and hope and power and authority that comes from a life of faith in Jesus who is God with us in the middle of whatever it is that we're going through. On one level, that's, this would be an incredibly discouraging story for me because that's not how I live. I don't walk with courage and strength on top of the water in what I'm going through. I lie in bed at night and three in the morning and I think about how I'm going down and under the water. I think about how I'm in over my head. I lie in bed at night and sometimes I worry and stress about how I'm going to fix the situation that I find myself in. How I'm going to swim for shore, row a little harder, whatever it is, trying to be the solution to my own problems. That's what I do. And that's why one of my favorite parts of the story is in verse 30, and Peter's walking on the water and says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. That even Peter, in the midst of this circumstance, in the presence of Jesus, his eyes focused on him in faith, walking on the water towards Jesus, even Peter got distracted by his circumstances. Got distracted by the wind, began to be afraid of what might happen to him. And then Peter became his own self-fulfilling prophecy as he began to sink in the water as his faith in Jesus began to sink. And it says in verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. The thing I love about this part is not just that Peter's a human being like me who gets fixated on the circumstances and begins to lose faith and who starts to sink, but, but that Jesus' response to Peter is that he reached out immediately and caught him. I thought about this summer when I taught another one of my daughters to ride their bike, and I did this time what good dads do. And I held the back of the seat and I ran alongside until I let go and then ran beside the bike because she started to wobble and I would grab her before she fell and I'd pull her up and I'd look at her and say, honey, why did you stop pedaling? You, you were doing it. All you needed to do was just keep doing what you were doing. And that's what I hear in Jesus, this moment of gentleness and grace when he catches Peter in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his unfaith. And he says to him, why did you doubt? You were doing it. And I, I hear Jesus promising to walk with Peter deeper into faith the next time. And then they get in the boat and the storm is calmed and I get annoyed because I think our storms don't go away like that. But then thought hit me this week. 
once you've walked on water, in faith, once you've lived in the strength and confidence of knowing that Jesus is God with you in the midst of the circumstances that are swirling all around you, empowering you to, to take a stroll through the storm, to walk through these circumstances in power and victory and authority through the circumstances in which you have you, once you've walked on water, it almost doesn't matter what happens to your little boat, does it? See, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God with us in the middle of the storm, giving us, giving us strength and power and authority to take the, a, a stroll of confidence through our storm in the presence, in his presence, no matter what it is that we're going through. And all he asks of us is faith. And so the question for us this morning is, what are you living through? And where do you need to see Jesus in the middle of it? And we're going to spend some time reflecting on that. I'm going to ask the band to come to the stage. And we're just going to create a little space right now in the service for us to think about our lives, the lives of the people around us, to think about the storms that we're living through right now, to think about where we see Jesus in the midst of it, to think about how we need Jesus to rescue us. And then we're going to worship together God who is with us in the form of Jesus in the midst of the storm. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now in the sacredness of this space, bringing all of our life, bringing all of the storm, bringing everything that we're living through into your presence. Would you speak in these coming minutes? Would you meet us here would you allow us to see you for who you are? Would you drive away the fear? And would you fill us with confidence and strength to walk with you through whatever it is that we're going through right now? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.